Hey, listeners, uh, this is another Patreon episode preview. If you'd like the whole thing, you can go to patreon.com slash workstoppage and shoot us $5 a month, and you can get access to the full thing. If you cannot afford that right now, go ahead and hop in the Discord and message one of the admins, and we would be happy to hook you up with uh, these great history episodes, as well as some other really important educational resources. Um I hope that you enjoy this preview, though. Uh, Solidarity forever. Yeah, so a year after the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire and about 80 years after the formation of the Lowell Mill Girls Association, just 15 miles up the road in Lawrence, Massachusetts, which was another town centered on textile production, workers would once again be forced into collective action by the actions of the employers. So... You know, now we're, we've, we've advanced into the early 20th century. You know, the class struggle has, of course, advanced along with the march of history, whereas when we talked about those first couple of strikes in the like, early 19th century, when it, you're really looking at the very, very earliest phases of unions in the U.S. Now, about 80 years later, there's so much more history of la- labor organization in this country. There has been strikes that have been lost, strikes that have been won, and lots of lessons learned by workers about how to organize. And so now you, you enter into somewhat of a, of a different era of labor organizing. And so when we get to the context for this strike in 1912, there's been a lot more work on the ground by different workers' organizations to prepare like the field for them to actually be able to struggle and win against their employer. So like in Lawrence specifically, which is again another company town focused entirely around the textile industry, at, at this point, for several years, chapters of the IWW as well as the Italian Socialist Federation had been organizing among the workers in the town to defend their rights and fight together as a united class. And so like... Now, because, you know, in some of the earlier strikes, we talked about the ways that capitalists tried to, you know, pit workers against each other by paying, by hiring children and paying them far less than they would pay, like adult men workers, then hiring women workers specifically with the goal of paying them less than men. We've talked about, you know, of course, so many examples of just straight up refusing to hire black workers and then when they are hired, paying them far less than white workers. Well, and in this strike, we also have the you know, issue of ethnicity that is playing a, a key role in the way that the textile bosses tried to break workers' unity in Lawrence. So again, this is now that we're in the you know, beginning, early 20th century, there's been a surge in immigration from Europe, from places like Southern Europe, Eastern Europe. And this has cr- like created both openings for class struggle, but also, you know, the capitalist class trying to come up with new ways to fragment the, the working class. And so in Lawrence, you you start to see them targeting ethnic divisions. And so in an attempt to increase their profits by driving down wages for workers from Southern and Eastern Europe, they've started appealing to this idea of nativism and of like that Anglo-American workers in the U.S. are like, natural u.s citizens and it's like oh that completely Mm. ignores the settler colonial history of the united states um and so their goal here you know and we there's a million examples during this time period that you can like we see this in mining strikes we see this in strikes all over the east coast especially like where you see 
boss is trying to pit like white Anglo-Saxon workers, w- workers of Western European descent against workers of really any other descent. I mean, and, you still see this today. One of the stops that I go to, for instance, at my job has clearly distinct crews working in different areas of the building, doing different jobs. And like one crew is all like East Asian and one crew is all Latino and one crew is mostly black. And then like who's in the office? It's all fucking white people, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so they, the, the, Textile mill bosses in Lawrence felt that that was going to be their ticket. That's how they're going to stop these IWW agitators and all these socialist radicals because we're going to we're going to explain to the, you know, the quote unquote native white workers that that their interests lie with the bosses and not with their, you know, fellow workers. Uh, that plan, while unfortunately it was successful in some other places, did not work out in Lawrence. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we're going to get into that. And so like, as like, you know, we're into the 20th century now, or like a hundred years almost after the strike at Slater Mill. And so there's been quite a a number of technological advances in the textile industries. You have much larger, more powerful looms that can make more complex fabrics much faster with fewer people involved. And yet the conditions in the mills were still horrible. And, Now, though, now that we've gotten into the early 20th century, we have statistics to reflect that, and they're, uh, I'm not going to lie, pretty horrifying. Like, one-third of the workers in the Lawrence Mills died before the age of 25. Holy shit. Like, that number would be horrifying if it was 45. 25, like, these mills were death traps. Like, and... The mill towns in Massachusetts, like so Lawrence, Lowell, but there are others as well, had the worst child mortality rate in the country due to the conditions that the workers in those towns were put through in these mills. And, you know, once again, we, we do also, in addition to the ethnic divisions, they once again, the textile industry remained at this time a majority gendered uh, female employment. And so once again, you have the company trying to pay women workers less and pit the male workers against women workers. And like specifically, you know, you now you had in Lawrence with this like flood of immigration, you had Italian workers, Hungarian workers, Portuguese workers, Syrian workers, workers really from all over like Southern Europe, Eastern Europe and the Mediterranean generally. And to the point where actually nearly half of the mill workers in Lawrence had lived in the U S for less than five years. And so in order to fight against this attempt by the capitalists to break workers up by ethnicity, the IWW and various socialist groups, including, like like I said, the Italian Socialist Federation, had been working to organize mill owners along class lines for several years. And so when the bosses announced that due to a Massachusetts law cutting the maximum weekly hours of women and children to a mere 54 hours a week... (laughs) uh, the mill owners decided, oh, okay, well, they're, they, they won't let us work you more hours, so we're going to have to cut your wages, which they, they then plan to reduce workers' wages to $8.44 a week, which this is 100 years ago, so you got to do some translation for inflation, so uh, we can escalate that up to today's money, and when you average that out over a 54-hour week, we're going to pay the workers... an hour. That's just as fucking disgraceful. 
in in an industry which is so dangerous that again, one third of the workers die before the age of twenty five. So, like, yeah, that's those are the wages that these people in this incredibly dangerous environment were getting paid. And so this this wage cut was announced on January eleventh, and by the next day, January twelfth, over ten thousand workers went out on strike. Well, yeah, hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I I mean I love that. I mean with the IWW uh their and their focus on class unity and ensuring that all workers could participate, they held meetings with uh speeches in 25 different languages, solidifying the workers' demands of a 15% increase to wages, double pay for overtime, and no discrimination against strikes. Uh, A reporter for a newspaper, The Outlook, described the scene as, There are almost as many nationalities here in Lawrence as there are in your Babel of New York. Which, I I don't know what that reference is, actually. Uh, Like, the Tower of Babel is the, 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 you know, like, biblical metaphor for many tongues Uh, (laughs) yeah many cultures and and languages interacting yeah right so continuing the quote uh the workers are american english scotch irish german french flemish french canadian polish italian syrian russian armenian i heard speeches in six languages you might not suspect that a common sentiment could and could animate these diverse groups and uh, weld them into a fight fighting unit. Uh, nevertheless, they have struck struck as a single homogenous body. Once again, uh, women workers played a key leadership role in the strike, which is commonly remembered as the Bread and Roses strike, due to the demands of the strikers that they be not given just wages to survive, but have a life. The name of the uh, James uh, Oppenheim poem, which inspired many strikers' signs and and chants, came from the lines, Our lives shall not be sweated from birth until life closes. Hearts starve as well as bodies. Give us bread, but give us roses. And, I mean, that's... It's really... Uh, interesting how this dynamic really reflects what we talked about in the very first rank and file episode when we kind of quoted some of the labor organizing in the steel industry on how engaging with all people on that kind of class basis is the really most effective way to bring a strong strike and get the most out of your demands. Yeah, well, and it's also like, it's a really interesting turning point for labor, because I think for a long time, a lot of strikes really were concerned with like, you need to make sure that we have work conditions that are safe, and you need to make sure that we're paid for our work, etc. And it was always very central to like the time you spend at the job. But this kind of like, further sight into like, okay, we need a job that's not just going to like, keep us alive, we need a job that's going to give us a life outside of work. And also yeah. keep us alive. And you see that in like uh, old IWW political cartoons where it's like eight hours to sleep, eight hours to work, right. eight hours for what we will, I think is what they say, yeah. which is a really great way of putting it. Uh, but in response to this strike, you have 
bourgeois figures like the mill bosses and the local government who responded in the way that uh, they've always responded to everything, especially during this time. I mean, certain coal and steel strikes come to mind, uh, with, which is with extreme repression. So on the very first day of the strike, the mayor actually ordered out the local militia who turned fire hoses on the strikers in the freezing winter air. When workers responded by throwing ice at them, 24 workers were arrested and sentenced to a year in prison. A local small business owner who was in the pay of the mill owners actually went around and planted dynamite bombs at several locations around town in an attempt to frame the strikers and justify further violence against them. He was caught, but only fined $500 and released. Meanwhile, workers who threw ice were arrested and sentenced to a year in prison. Right. Uh, which is just like that double standard we still see today in OSHA fines are a great example. Uh, well, the, and the po- I mean, obviously the crime of literally spraying people with water in the middle of the freezing winter being yeah. another crime that went entirely unpunished. Yeah, which can be very, very deadly. Uh, the police also arrested two of the lead IWW organizers on framed charges for shooting a striker who had in fact been shot by police. I don't know. How you? I'm people yeah. really are that dumb that they'll believe the IWW shot a striking worker. Well, well but the thing is, like, you know, it's one of those things you read because I read it when I was looking for this. I was like, wait, they said the IWW guy shot one of the strikers. Who the fuck would believe that? But like, think about how many times we hear the police blame the people they themselves have just murdered mm-hmm. for their own death. So like the. The some of the language and some of the PR speak changes, but I mean it's a lot of the same stuff. Yeah, yeah. As much as things change, they stay the same. And uh, following these arrests, the government declared martial law and banned all public meetings in the city. Students at Harvard were also given exemptions from their exams. This blows my mind. If they went to Lawrence to break the strike, mm-hmm. <laughs> hey Harvard students. Uh, do you want to not have to take your law tests? <laughs> do you want to not have to take your engineering tests? Go break a strike and you're good to go. It's, what the fuck? I, that detail was just so funny to me because it's so wild to just see the open appeal to pure class interest. Because like the students at Harvard are never gonna, they're probably never going to spend a minute in Lawrence otherwise. But they're basically like, hey, 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 the rabble. Yeah. is trying to screw with your class's ability to exploit them. And the whole reason you're going to Harvard is so you can be part of this, you know, elite block that's that's going to be in charge of, of ruling this. So why don't you right. come help us with that? <laughs> Half of your dads own these textile right. mills anyway, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, here's your here's your starter experience in class repression. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Well, and I I also kind of I, I chuckle a little at the idea of a bunch of Harvard boys being like, yeah, we're Harvard boys. See, we're real rough and tumble. The roughest <laughs> of the Ivies. And then they get to like where the mill workers are and they're like, I'm not sure we're ready for what these fellows are dishing out. <laughs> these ladies are pretty <laughs> tough too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I looked, I couldn't really find any example of them really showing up and making much of a difference. So. No, I can't imagine that they would. I mean, they're probably, they're just a bunch of pampered rich kids anyway. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the IWW responded to the repression 
session uh, with a campaign across the entire East Coast for support for the strikers. Big Bill Haywood and Elizabeth Gurley Flynn were sent to Lawrence to help organize the response, and their primary tactic was seeking supporters from outside Lawrence who could care for the children of the strikers during the duration of the strike. When police attacked families for taking their children to the train station, public opinion turned massively against the mill owners. Interestingly, not against the police necessarily, uh, (laughs) which is insane. Finally, after two months, the mill owners were forced to agree to the workers' demands, and on March 12th, the strike was over. Hundreds of thousands of mill workers across New England would receive similar raises in the following months. Unfortunately, the lack of a union contract would mean that many of these hard-fought gains would unfortunately be temporary. Oh my gosh. Again, with an example of how to effectively organize by making sure that parents are able to get childcare for their for their children during times of of strike and also just in general like providing for the need the actual material needs of people who are doing this work. Mhm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the uh, cuz it that was one of the things I think that was so funny about well, I guess not funny, but I guess eye-opening about reading this was that there had been plenty of stories, although surely not as many of there should have been, about the repression being faced by the workers themselves. But that didn't really stir as much public outrage because it's relatively easy for, like, you know, the bourgeois press to be like, well, the strikers say they want this, but then they threw ice at these militia. So really, who's to say who's right or wrong? <laughs> Whereas, you know, when you have the, the image of police clubbing parents who are just trying to take their kids to the train station. It's really hard to spin that. Like, and, and that like was the thing that really the public was like, well, I wasn't sure about this whole strike mess before, but I don't really think that they should be beating children. That's, that's, that's bad. (laughs) And I think that another thing that, that, that highlights is, you know, like was mentioned, I mean, why aren't they mad at the police? But, but the direct connection that the people saw between the police and the mill owners, yes. as if that the cops were just the running dogs for the mill owners. Yeah, absolutely. God, I love the phrase running dogs. That is such, <laughs> it, it, it is acidic. Like, <laughs> you do not want that wielded against you. It will instantly KO you, one shot. It, it's so good. <laughs> and that's actually a pretty good transition into the last story that we're going to be covering here. As we come marching, marching in the beauty of the day A million darkened kitchens, a thousand mill lost gray Are brightened by the beauty a sudden sun discloses And the people hear us singing bread and roses Bread and roses as we come marching, marching, we battle to for men. For they are women's children, we'll mother them again. Our lives shall not be sweated from birth until life closes. Hearts can starve as well as bodies, give us bread, but give us roses. As we come marching, marching, a hundred million dead. Go crying through our singing Their ancient cry for bread Small art and love and beauty Their drudging spirits knew Yes, it's bread we fight for But we fight for roses too As we come marching, marching We're standing proud and tall The rising of the women is The rising of us all 
No more the drudge and idler can that toil where one reposes. But a sharing of life's glory, bread and roses, bread and roses, bread and roses.